Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio. We talk with midlife learners about their educational journey, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. My guest today is Kerry Williams. He's a certified financial planner and works with Pavilion Investment House as an associate private wealth counselor. Kerry is currently enrolled in the Canadian Securities Institute, where he's studying portfolio management techniques. He's pursuing a chartered investment manager designation. Kerry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Kerry, for those not familiar with the financial planning world, help us better understand what is the Chartered Investment Manager designation and how does that differ from your current designation as a certified financial planner? Unfortunately, I, I don't think the industry's made it as simple as maybe we could have to um, for people to navigate um, this kind of thing. And, and in actuality, the designations actually have changed over the years as they add more material or, or revamp how the industry thinks designations should go. So uh, I would put it if I could try and stay away from some of the jargon, the certified financial planner is really focused in on some of the personal finance conversations. So how how much do I need to save? Uh, am I going to be able to retire and have my money not run out? Those kind of conversations. The chartered investment manager is much more designed around investments. So you get into some very uh, technical aspects of certain types of investments and uh, beyond just your standard portfolio management uh, eventually. So th- that's kind of how I would separate them. One is much more around personal finance and, and the other is much more around investments. That's great. So one of the questions I like to ask everyone is, how long is your program? And you gave me this really interesting answer. It was almost like a math equation and math is not my strong suit. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through how the designation process works and explain uh, how how uh, the exam process works as well. Sure. So in actuality, that was probably my way of trying to justify the number of hours of exams I've written in the last few years. So a bit of the background on me, I, I did a, a Bachelor of Commerce and, um, you know, being a, uh, an enterprising 18-year-old when I went to university or, or tried to decide what I was going to do, I decided I was going to do a Bachelor of Commerce because I figured that was practical. And then I'd never have to do school ever again. Sounds like a good plan. That was the plan. And uh, as you can tell from the multiple designations I'm, I'm partaking in or have completed, that went right out the window after a few years. So that was sort of the idea. And um, this program then I came about after I had joined the the financial industry and I started to figure out where would I fit in this world of, of investment and financial advice. And so w- one of the challenges in, in the financial industry is that you get licensed in one process and that allows you to work within securities, but it doesn't give you enough knowledge, I don't think, to to do the job the way you may want to. And that was the situation I found myself in. So I started exploring other other designations. And as my career evolved, I realized that I needed different types of knowledge. So you're probably familiar with this idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect or the Dunning-Kruger curve. I'm not familiar with that. Explain that. So you can, I mean, the easiest thing to do is to search it on on Google as as is the easiest way to do most things nowadays. But the Dunning-Kruger research sort of says the most confidence you have in a field of study or of interest is right after you've learned a, a tiny little bit about it you are super confident that you know exactly what you're supposed to do with this knowledge. And as you learn more and more, your confidence falls because you start to realize how much you don't know. 
and you get to this kind of valley in the in the chart, and then you start to tick back up as you become that sort of master's PhD level, let's say. So I'm sort of in that realm. I'm past the valley. I think I know how much I don't know, and I feel pretty confident that I can do a, a very good job as a result. But prior to that, you start to learn a bit more, and you start to realize, oh, man, all this stuff I thought I knew, I don't know, and now I need to go back to school. So that was sort of the process, and then I realized I could take these designations and progress my career and, and feel more confident in my expertise. That's really interesting. I, and it's important to know what you don't know and to kind of acknowledge that and, and do something about it. Yeah. And you can imagine in the financial world, it has real implications for families. You know, I feel very blessed that I get to wake up every day and, and know that I'm making people's lives better uh, and helping them solve problems that they've got. But when you don't know what you don't know, you have a real impact on someone's finances. And that's, um, for me anyway, that was that was a scary thing. I yeah. needed to go back to school and get these designations to, to help solve that problem. Right. Well, I know uh, a lot of the learning that you're doing is, is online primarily, and I'm doing some online courses myself. And I know there's some challenges um, in maintaining focus, or at least I have challenges when the weather is nice and sunny and I have other things that I could be doing with my time. How do you keep yourself motivated and focused, especially over such a long period of time? I would say my number one piece of advice is you need to pick a really good spouse. Someone who can pick up all the slack uh, <laughs> because you're going to be incredibly, uh, incredibly busy. Uh, you know, from that perspective, I'm I'm really lucky. My wife works full time, and she's uh, she's really exceptional at managing those types of things, and has been really supportive. So, one of the the more recent uh, books that I've read that has had an impact on on how I view the world and careers is is a book called The Hundred Year Life. I don't know if you've heard of this book. But I haven't. It's out of the UK, a couple of professors, I think from the London School of Business. And um, they discuss this idea that if you look at how our ability to manage longevity and increase longevity has come about in the last few decades, if you sort of extrapolate that, it's very reasonable to think that people born today can on average have 100-year lives. And if you then take that and look at careers, that means that if you graduate with an undergrad in your early 20s, you probably have a 50-year working life. And it, when you put it in those numbers, that is, it's almost shocking. What, what are you going to do for 50 years? Wow. How are you going to manage that process? And so you add into that this idea of automation and innovation and robotics, and you start to realize that we need to look at our careers a little differently. So I am of the opinion now that you just, you have to accept you're going to learn and study your whole life. And you're probably going to do new designations and pick new careers and try and recalibrate skills and do those things. So my wife and I talk about these things. She's a business grad as well. And she's been very supportive in me as I've tried to build this, this career over the last decade. That's really interesting. First of all, I feel younger as a, as a result of hearing about that. So thank you very much for that. But also, it does really reframe the question of, of careers in a, in a fascinating way. And this idea of lifelong learning, which is all about what we're talking about on this podcast. So that's great. Um, so this program that you're taking, it obviously has some benefits for your current occupation. Um, how has your employer supported you in this journey? They've been great, actually. I, um, I had uh, started my career with another firm and moved uh, over to Pavilion uh, about four years ago now. And um, the primary reason for that was cultural. I just felt like it was a good fit for where, where I needed my career to go and, and the type of advice I wanted to be giving. And you always have this hesitancy. You probably see this in, as you talk to other uh, people who are going through new career moves or, or new education. You could be 90% sure that this is the right decision, but you're never positive until you're in the middle of it. And it was absolutely the right decision for me. The culture has been fantastic. And so just from a, a few perspectives, I mean, all, most people in my firm are encouraged to do 
postgraduate work, whether that's a PhD or CFA, um, Chartered Financial Analyst, uh, or, or what I'm doing, the Chartered Investment Manager. So there's a real support for that as far as an understanding and encouragement, time spent, um, covering off the cost of courses, all of those kind of things. So if I need to you know, take a bit of time out of a day and make up some time later, that's not, that's not an issue. So that's really great. That's great. And how much time is it taking you each week on average to uh, to complete your studies? Uh, that's a really good question. It's a difficult one, I think, because uh, so my kids are um, turning six and eight. My wife works full time. You really have to grab that time wherever you can, depending on the family schedule. So um, I have some friends who are other parents who, who who sit in during during kids sports. My kids do karate two days a week, as an example. So that's an hour. So I get about 40 minutes in during during their karate and, and the other parents laugh at me because they'll either come over and take a look at what I'm studying and then leave me alone or they'll come and say hi and ask how things are going. And so you sort of pick up the process wherever you can. But uh, the nice thing about being a little older is you don't uh, allocate as much time to go into the bar maybe that you did when you were in university. So that's a, a lot of time picked up probably. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there is a lot of time saved there. Um, you mentioned uh, your wife and your kids, and and that was one of the questions I had was just around the balance of of work and life and school. And um, aside from kind of grabbing time wherever you can, do you have any specific tips around that that you can share and how you balance all that? Yeah, I found um, being older and and going to school, uh, I did find it more difficult uh, for a lot of reasons. But I think the main the main one is you just have so much. Uh, your time is just so much more finite. It feels like because you only have so much time. And I found as my kids have gotten older, that's been more difficult. When my kids were younger and they went to bed at seven, you know, I could grab a couple hours in the evening and do that. And now that they're six and eight, and they're going to bed later, and it's more difficult to get them to go to bed and they want to be up earlier maybe or doing fun things with dad. That's that's very difficult. I, I, I feel for other parents from that perspective, for sure. As far as specific things, I mean, we um, we do things like we schedule study time. So especially in the last couple of months before my, my last exam, Friday nights, my, my wife handled you know, the kids and dinner and did all that. And I just got out of the house and I spent Friday night studying. It's, it's the most nerdy thing you can probably admit to, but, but that's the time. Um, you know, Saturday or Sunday mornings, uh, that would happen from time to time where I would get up and I'd get the kids ready. And then as soon as my wife was up, I was gone for a few hours. So you just have to build that time in and, and having her be understanding about that is really incredible. So I would say calendaring and scheduling is really important. If you don't put it in the calendar and make sure everybody's on the same page at that time is, is selfish study time, it's just not going to happen. Beyond that, um, you know, one of the things that I really found myself doing because I was, I had to be so much more efficient is I spent a bunch of time relearning how to learn. The neuroscience, I think, around studying and learning has really progressed in the last decade. I, I mean, I graduated from university in 2003 and uh, my mom, my mother was a teacher. She was a librarian uh, with her master's in library sciences. And she was, I think, ahead of her time. She really knew or believed that uh, computers were going to change everything as it connected to knowledge. So this is now 25 years ago. So she believed you shouldn't memorize anything. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that was sort of the, the viewpoint. She said, learn how to learn. If you can learn how to learn, you'll be fine. Don't worry about memorizing. Everything's going to be available in a book somewhere, you know, and that right. was way before the internet. And so at least functionally. So to, for, for me, that was really valuable. And so I knew how to study going into university, which lots of kids don't. I was lucky that way. But I found now my time is so much more compressed and my brain is older that I had to reteach myself that. So I picked up um, 
a book called from Barbara Oakley called The Mind for Numbers, which is um, a really inter- her backstory is really interesting. She was um, a specialist in in Russian studies, and then realized that if she was going to progress through, I think she was in the military. Uh, she had to become an engineer in communications and so went back and relearned how to study science and math and all these things. And a uh, fascinating story. But she sort of talks about these techniques and what the neuroscience is saying and right. along that. So tell us a little bit more about that because I, I find this really interesting and I think our listeners will as well. Um, when you talk about learning how to learn, and you ha- it sounds like you had some uh, very good study habits uh, when you were young. Some of us might not have had that uh, benefit, but also just relearning. What specific techniques are we talking about? Or can you walk us through some of your process? So one of the things that um, Dr. Oakley, uh, I believe she's a doctor or PhD, uh, talks about is this idea that we can pick up enough knowledge from reading uh, exclusively to to write exams and to do things that way. And she says that's a complete misnomer. We, especially when you're reviewing. So if you've read through a textbook and you go back through and you sort of leaf through and reread the summaries, you're not going to keep stuff in your brain. It's very short term. So there's lots of different techniques that she kind of talks about. And some of this is, is a bit intuitive, but things like mind mapping, things like um, developing your own questionnaires, things that you can you can quiz and test yourself on is much more valuable than just a pure reading format. Over and above that, pardon me, uh, she looks at things like, um, um, what's the technique? I'm, I'm dropping the name of it right now, but it's a technique where you take a visual picture of, say, a room or a house, and you attach different pieces of information to each area of the room. So you imagine yourself walking through your house, and my kitchen table is this part of my essay, my introduction, and then the... Uh, sofa is this part of my essay and it's purple. So I'm going to connect it to this, you know, person I'm writing about whose name starts with P. And then I walk to my bedroom and I connect that because we're so much better at remembering things when we're visual. And so you just um, kind of mind map yourself through that process again, as you're writing your essay out or answering questions. I can't do that technique very well. It doesn't work for me, but I do the, the, the question and answer frequently. She talks about things like interleafing. So you can't pick up a piece of information, uh, once and remember it. Most people can't. Most people don't have photographic memories. So you have to interleave that with other information that makes your brain kind of come back to it over and over and over. So as an example, when I started my last course, I went through and I mapped out all the chapters that were there. I um, put a rating on them based on how much the test was going to allocate to each chapter. I started with the highest allocated chapters first, even though the book wasn't written that way. So when I read through the book the first time, it actually didn't make a lot of sense in some ways because it didn't follow a progression. There were question marks I had. And that act of being confused actually makes you pick that information up faster. So when you go back through and you solve those problems, you remember them because you've solved the problem. It's counterintuitive, but the more we have to work on being educated and uh, learning things, the more likely it is we'll remember them is sort of her viewpoint. So that's a long explanation, but hopefully that's... This is great. And I think that, I mean, I'm learning a lot in terms of techniques that I think could be very applicable for my own studies. And I I think our listeners will get a lot out of that too. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to take you back because I always find it interesting to learn how careers have evolved. And you mentioned the Bachelor of Commerce, and you said that you had majored in Japanese studies. You shared that with me at one point. Um, How did that lead you to the investment world? It's funny, I think when I first came out of university with, uh, my wife did her degree in, in bilingual, so in French, and uh, we met at, at university and we had this conversation a few years out of coming out, I would say maybe the second year after university, and we, we both felt a bit um, uh, disillusioned, maybe is the right word, as far as two years out, 
did this degree help us very much? And it's hard when you specialize in a language or a culture because nobody says, come and apply to our Japanese department or come and apply to our French department, especially in Canada, the Japanese department in most firms just doesn't exist. So uh, it, it's not an easy route by any means. Uh, I went into that because I was a Rotary Exchange student in high school. And so, you know, again, being 18 years old, trying to figure things out, what are you good at that nobody else is? Well, I kind of have this bit of language background. So... I went into the Bachelor of Commerce in Japanese Studies, and the interesting thing at that point was that you did half of your half of your school, half of your classes in in arts, so language, culture, history, the other half in business. And at the time, I knew that I really enjoyed investment finance, but I didn't want to be an analyst. I didn't want to sit around analyzing spreadsheets per se or or financial documents. But my favorite class was a sociology class that looked at the East Asian crisis of 1997. So what was the financial background? How did the currency uh, affect things? And what was the impact on the societies in East Asia at the time? And I still remember that. I remember the professor. I remember lots about that class because it was just so interesting to me because it kind of married up these two interests. And that, too, I would say is sort of a metaphor for my degree. It was this mixture of arts and culture and finance. Fast forward and um, coming out of university, I put out probably 30 resumes and I got one phone call, you know, and I thought I had done everything you could imagine. I did co-op. I worked for General Motors managing on their assembly line when I was in university. I lived overseas for two years. I spoke another language for the most part. (laughs) Um, I couldn't think of another thing I could do. And yet I didn't get any phone calls back. But the way that I got my first job out of university was that I uh, realized when I was in Japan when you're there in university, the way that you meet other people is through social clubs. So maybe you join the judo club or those types of things. And uh, I sort of brought that back to Edmonton. And I said, well, if the way to get something out of this society over there and to really appreciate the culture and the people is to be involved, maybe I need to do that back home. And so I just said yes when I came back to almost anything. Somebody asked me to do something, yes. And I found out about Film and Video Arts Alberta. I don't know if you're familiar with this little Film and Video, that's the FAVA society. organization. Yeah, FAVA. Yeah. yeah. They were doing this really cool program on Sunday nights where you could go as a community member, anyone could show up, and you would get handed this draft script someone had written, and you would do two hours with a tiny group they put you together with, learning lines, and you would do a short film of a minute or two, and everybody would watch. And it was hilarious and fun and, and super interesting, and I'd never heard anything about it. Ever And I'd lived in Edmonton at that point for probably a decade. I'd never heard of this group. And so I started going, man, there's some really cool people doing really cool things here I've never heard of. And I just started that process going along. And um, that led me to join a musical, if you can believe it. So here's this, you know, this business student studying foreign language. And I heard about this musical. Anybody can audition out in Sherwood Park. So I went ahead and did it. And... uh, (laughs) I was, I was terrible, but they gave me this tiny little role and I got to act like a, you know, a bit silly and it was super fun. And two months after graduating, I'm talking to the executive director of this community musical and she says, you don't have a job yet. And I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm still looking. And she says, uh, well, I have, a, I have a friend who runs a catering company and they need somebody to run food at lunchtime. Would you do that? Oh yeah. I mean, I need some money, you know, I gotta, gotta pay for rent. And so sure. And then I'm there for a couple of weeks, great little company called Crave, and they took really good care of me and taught me tons of stuff about food and business and things in just a few weeks. They were great. And I'm talking to the accountant and she says, oh, well, 
what'd you study? And I said, well, Japanese studies. Oh. Well, my old boss works for a company that does a lot of work in China. You know, would you be interested in that? And I said, well, I don't speak Chinese, but, you know, they're different countries. <laughs> but, or some snarky thing like that, I'm sure. And um, she said, well, give me your resume and I'll pass it on. And so I get my one interview of 30 because the accountant at the catering company who I met because the head of the musical knew I needed a job that I was doing because I wasn't in school anymore decided that I was nice enough and there's some sort of a connection there. You know, it's completely random. And that was my first job at a university. And I was worked as a textiles buyer for f almost five years at a university. Uh, so I was in China six times inspecting factories and, and in Europe and doing these things. But um, my real interest was investment finance. So I would be doing my, you know, reading on things on my own time and learning that. And when I realized that I wanted to go back and, and look more at, at what I had studied at university, then, then I sort of progressed over to that side. What an amazing story. I was waiting for you to, I'm like, he's going to get to the investment part at some point. I'm sure it comes right after the musical. Yeah. And it, it doesn't until way later. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny. I tell that story because I often this question comes up to people and, you know, you've got this great job or wherever you're at. And, and I think especially when I do talks to, to folks at the universities and they ask how I got this great job as an advisor. Well, I got this great job as an advisor because I did this whole other thing first. And I got some experience and I learned how to run a good business. But the thing that translated from what I did at, as a textiles buyer was that I, um, when you go in, at least at that time, I mean, this is more than a decade ago now, but at that time when you went to a, a factory in China, if you asked them if they could do some, uh, something specific for you, some sort of widget, the answer was always yes. And if they couldn't do it, they would either try and figure it out, which typically meant poor quality, or they would go and find somebody else that made it, and then they would sell it to you as almost like an agent, and they would just tack on their 10 or 20%. And so you, you weren't certain of what quality you were going to get necessarily all the time. And so eventually you learn that you have to ask the right question in the right way to know if you can get a feel for whether or not you're getting a, an answer that's accurate for your expectation. And that's not that different from dealing with personal finance. I was going to say, is that something that you're using now in, in your current role as a financial planner? Yeah, all the, all the time. Uh, you know, money is so inherently emotional that often, you know, a very, what can seem like a very simple question on the surface uh, can really dive down into somebody's psychology and into how they deal with their family around money. A lot of the conversations we end up having with, with our folks, I mean, we're a bit unique in that the folks that we deal with are successful moms and dads, and they, they typically have more money than they're going to need in retirement. And so they have other concerns. And we start talking a lot about purpose. What's the point of having this extra money and hanging on to it? What do we want it to achieve? Where do we want it to go? And they start talking about their hopes and their dreams for their kids or for their charities. Those are not money questions anymore. Those are emotional questions. And so, you know, knowing how to ask the right question that gets at their fear or their hope is, um, is not a skill I ever thought I would have to use coming out of university. And um, I would say it's one of the key things that, that we do is really help them formalize what that hope and that fear is so that we can address it and, and use that success that they've experienced to help them achieve it. Very interesting. Now, I know that you have hit a milestone birthday. You are now 40, so you're in my decade. <laughs> Great decade to be in. Um, but it's a little different going back to school as a midlife learner uh, than it was in, in our 20s. So what was different this time uh, versus when you got your first degree? 
We, we touched on a couple things for sure. One of which is, I don't know if you found this, but um, I just find time is so much harder to find now. And you just have so many competing interests there. And I, uh, it's interesting through work. I hear this even from, you know, people who are in, in my parents' generation, they're dealing with, with older adults, um, older parents. And so they feel they're in a pinch again as well sometimes. So I think that's a big part of it. You have to, time management is huge. Calendaring, scheduling has been huge for me. Uh, I find I sleep less, or at least I feel like I sleep less. So I'm, I'm way more tired than prior to having kids. Uh, and I, my brain just works differently. Mm. So I don't know if you've seen this, but, but in the news and in particular around some of the infographics, there's been this idea of how your, how our brains change over our lifetime. And that, that pure processing kind of peaks in our late twenties, early, uh, late teens, early twenties. But Emotionally, we get much better at recognizing situations and context and dealing with people into our 50s, so to speak. And I find that I'm probably progressing that way. So I have to learn again, how do I deal with the math side when I may not be doing that type of work in my brain uh, day to day and then um, sort of figuring out new ways to learn that stuff. So there's definitely, I think, some strategic side to it. I, mm -hmm. I don't think all is lost. Einstein published general relativity in his late 30s, so we're probably going to be okay. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's some, some definite um, strategic aspects to it, for me anyway. Great. Well, something I'm wondering about, and I think our listeners might be wondering about, and since you're a certified financial planner, many of our listeners are probably curious about how to pay for their education because it can be a really big investment. So I'm just wondering if you have any general tips or thoughts around that. Yeah, it's difficult to give very specific um, recommendations because it, what I found in being a financial planner is things are really personal and it really depends on the situation. Uh, I think in general, there is some math you can put behind some things. And as you said, it's an investment. So can we quantify, as an example, what the future salary is going to look like based on this investment. And then can we do some math around what's the best way to pay for that? What's our interest rate on loans going to be versus interest or return am I getting on my investments? Do I pull it from my investments because they won't meet that return or that interest rate on the loan? Do I take the loan out because I think I can do better on my investments? Those types of questions are the things we talk about. It's similar when we talk to clients about mortgages. You know, you have to, you can weigh this economic situation of what's my expected return on my money versus yeah. what's my... What's my interest rate on my loans and my debt? One of the things that, that my wife and I agreed on is that we would spend money on freeing up time because you can't get that back. So we did things like from time to time, we would hire people to do our lawn, hire people to clean our house. Uh, we use a food delivery service as an example um, that uh, delivers food to your house pre-measured pre and everything so that dinners were easier to make on our own. Some of these things I feel are, are worth spending money on. So... Um, it is tough as you get older to, to balance all these things. Yeah, good advice. Thank you for that. Now, I know going back to school can be daunting. I know it was a little daunting for me, um, especially when you have this long-term commitment. It's not necessarily a short um, race that you're in. This is more like a marathon that you're doing. So are there specific things that you do to sustain yourself, both physically and emotionally, as you're going about this journey? Yeah, I think similar to that idea of, of spending some money to, to free up time, it was a very similar conversation uh, for, for Alana and I. Uh, one of the things that we do and that we've done recently is uh, we've committed money to a personal trainer, as an example, where at one day a week at least we'll just we'll spend the money and we'll go and do that. I think that's money well spent when it comes to health, when it comes to time. Um, 
you know, I'm pretty open, at least with my friends, that I found becoming a parent really hard, much harder than some of my friends did. Uh, I have friends who just think this is the best job in the world. And the first time I heard that, I laughed out loud. So, <laughs> you know, my fr- my kids are great, but but you're you're balancing all these different viewpoints and desires, and it's hard. So uh, I found when my second was running and walking that life was really busy and hard to grasp onto. So I started doing things like um, I used a meditation app, tried to do that every day. I've gotten away from that practice a bit, although I'm trying to get back to it. And I found it really helpful. It's almost become a bit of a cliche to hear about the executive, uh, you know, or the financial advisor or, or investment guy doing meditation, but but it's been really helpful. I've also tried to be more active in in how I commute. So I try and ride my bike if I can. I try and walk when I can. Just try and really take care of health and build that into the kind of day-to-day, both mental and physical. So I think that's really important. It's tough as a parent that way. Sounds like you find it easier being a student than a parent. Yeah, I would say in a lot of ways you're right. (laughs) What's been the most positive thing for you about this whole experience of going back to school? Uh, I think the big thing is is the sense of confidence that comes from it. You know, it's... uh, I think it's more daunting prior to than than during in a lot of ways. Can you can you do all of these things that you want to do? And um, now that I've done it a few times, I think yeah, we can handle this. And my wife feels the same way. So one of the things in this hundred year life book that I mentioned is that they really talk about this idea of how careers and um, and, and marriages or, or or those types of partnerships will ebb and flow. That we're going to have to get to the point where we recognize that families. Uh, adults need to be reskilling every five to 10 years, maybe. And as a result, you ideally are going to not have necessarily work-life balance, but maybe career balance where, you know, I've spent the last, call it 10 years, kind of reskilling in, in this career. And, uh, you know, it's probably going to have to be my, my wife's turn soon right. to do that. And I'll focus in on just working instead of studying and working. And she'll go and do, figure out whatever her next role is going to be in on that end. I love that you're thinking about this journey together and really kind of thinking about that balance. I think that's really important. Yeah, it really is. And we see this at work a lot. We have a lot of conversations with with our clients that they need to be talking, if not just to each other, to their kids as well about some of these things. I have some, I've been very lucky to have some friends that are very, um, very sharp. And so a few years ago, um, a couple of our friends had said that they had developed a family plan and we kind of went, well, what are you talking about? And they sit down once a year and they say, okay, what do you want to do this year? What do I want to do? What are we going to do as a family? And they just start setting some goals for the year. And it can be everything from career, which is important that you both understand so that you can manage it. But it can be very simple things where you kind of celebrate how lucky you've been, you know, whether that's a trip or, or, you know, something like that. So, so we've started doing that. I wrote an article for our clients a few years ago about this idea that we've kind of separated into six areas that we try and focus in on. And, we're not great implementers. We usually have a conversation in December to say, where are you at and where am I at and where do we want to be? And uh, it doesn't always get written down the way it should, although uh, it's, you know, we do okay. We try and come back to it a couple times during the year. But that, com- that act of having that conversation, I think, is really important. And in terms of this journey, was, was there anything that surprised you uh, that you weren't expecting that you want to share? Uh, I mean, I think... I think this idea that we really are going to be lifelong learners and we have to be, I, I've really been struck by that the last few years. This 100 Year Life book came out and then uh, with some of the political changes that have happened in the United States and in Canada the last couple of years and some of the recognition that 
Um, there are areas of our of our society that have not uh, been able to progress their lifestyle and their careers along with the changes that have happened. You know, I heard, I don't know how accurate this is, but I heard a little while ago that uh, lifespans in the U.S., uh, average lifespans have fallen for the first time in, in a few decades that typically they're, they're, they're progressing forward and, and growing longer and longer. And they've, they've fallen back because of some of the, the really dramatic social issues that are in pockets of the U.S. I mean, I think that that, for me anyway, looking at that and the employment rate through things like manufacturing and, and mining and some of those things and the recognition that life is changing and careers are changing and now concerns around robotics and innovation, as I mentioned, I think we're at the point where we just have to accept that this is something we have to be able to do or we're going to get left behind. So that, I think, was a bit of a surprise. I mean, as I said, coming out of university, I was never going to school again. Right. And now maybe that never finishes. Maybe just 10 years from now, I have to be looking at my next designation or my next degree or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm getting that sense. And I, I'm, I'm going to um, track down this uh, 100-year uh, life journey book, and I'll link it up in the show notes for, for all of our listeners, um, because it really does give you a different perspective on things. Um, what advice uh, would you have for our listeners or for that person who is maybe mid-career, who's thinking about starting this journey back to the classroom, but maybe they're a little bit hesitant or, or anxious about it? What advice would you have for them? I think the, the big thing is to really start laying the foundation as soon as you can. You need to be having these conversations with the people in your life who are important. So you're all on the same page about how you're going to manage this because it's not easy. It, it really isn't. Uh, so that's one of the starts and recognizing that, uh, that, that it has to happen. You know, I think there are very few careers now where people are going to be able to do this job or their job for 20 to 50 years. One, I think you're going to be bored. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. You know, and um, I mean, when I worked at General Motors in the plant, it was just a few months, but the guys and gals that I managed there that were doing, you know, drilling the same place over and over and over every 30 seconds for an eight-hour day, um, that's hard on your body, let alone your brain. So that type of work, I think, people are going to move away from and either because they're forced to or because out of desire they want to. So I think recognizing that we need to be be constantly learning is going to be really important and bringing the right people in and, and, and going from there. Learning how to learn. Absolutely. I think is going to be a huge skill. Right. And is, as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you want to share about this experience so far? I sound, I think, sometimes like I've been planning this out my whole life, but really it's just fumbling, fumbling through and trying to figure out what works as, as everybody does. So my dad laughs at me that he said he never planned things as well as I do. But in the, in, in the end, it's really about saying yes to as many things as possible and seeing how many you don't fail at and then moving on from there, right? I think that's really good advice is just jumping in and, and not being afraid to say yes. And even if it doesn't work out, it might lead to that next thing that yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> like, like doing a musical. <laughs> like doing a musical. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie, it's been really amazing chatting with you. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and for making time for us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I want to dispel the myth that accountants are not fun people. The finance folks I know are incredibly cool, and they help us make sense of the numbers. In corporate, government, or not-for-profit organizations, one thing you always need is good financial information and the people to produce it. The Accounting Technician Certificate Program at Norquest College prepares you to play a key operational role in producing reliable financial information, as well as equipping you for the day-to-day -day practical work of accounting. 
It's a rewarding career that's always in demand. Find out more about becoming an accounting technician at norquest.ca forward slash AT. Now back to our show. Talking with Carrie brought up a few thoughts for me about time management. I can definitely tell that Carrie is a natural born planner, and it's not really surprising that he's chosen a profession where he helps other people get their lives organized. Carrie has a lot of really great strategies to get things done and is taking a long view with his 100 year life approach. So, listening to him talk about how he structures his time as a student, sandwiched amongst the many other demands of being a parent of two young children, working in a busy career, and doing all the things we need to get done in life, I was inspired about what you can accomplish when you focus. You can take that 40 minutes while your kids are at karate, and instead of scrolling through your social media feeds, you can actually be studying. Also, making a Friday night date with yourself at the library. It doesn't do much to advance your social life, but it's about doing whatever is necessary to find a quiet space and time to get the work done. That's how you manage school in midlife while raising a family. I have to admit, I'm not nearly as disciplined as Carrie. I think I would find it very hard to focus in a room full of kids doing karate. But I have my own time management and organizational strategies. I treat each assignment like a mini project, just like I would do for work with a full work back schedule and deadlines for research, first drafts, time built in for feedback, second drafts, final editing and formatting. This is my grown up work process. Back in my early 20s, I was a terrible student. I'd procrastinate till the night before the assignment was due. Then in the sheer adrenaline and caffeine fueled rush, I would dash off something to get the job done and hope for the best. I think most of us have been there, or maybe you are still there. No judgment. It's a lot of work balancing everything. To stay motivated, I make these little deals with myself, like if you get this task done now, you can have coffee with a friend or watch something on Netflix or go for a walk. And those are nice short-term rewards, and it gives me that carrot to help me get through whatever needs to be done. Bigger picture, I'm genuinely interested in what I'm studying now. I feel like I did my undergrad for everybody else. And while I don't regret that decision, there were quite a few required courses in my business degree, which were a real slog for me. This time is different and coupled with a more mature approach, it's much more enjoyable. Even if I do have to spend some weekends curled up with a textbook. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis peoples. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Norquest College, for supporting the show and to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.